Well, hello there. Today's show features master of wine and author Tim Hanai. Really interesting guy. He's taken a whole new approach to the art of food and wine coming together and how they affect one another and how we perceive them. And it all has to do with psychology, physiology. It's really fascinating stuff. And I know you're going to dig it. While you're thinking about that wine, come visit me and try some of my wine. Come over to Judd's Hill at the south end of the beautiful Silverado Trail here in Napa Valley. Visiting information can be found at juddshill.com. And while you're online checking things out, have a look at our fun videos, look at the poetry that's on there, all fun-related, all cool wine-related. We've got food and wine pairing recipes. You're going to enjoy yourselves on our site. And while you're there, put a little wine in your shopping cart. And as a special perk for being a listener, type in lowercase letters, J-N-V-S for Judd's Napa Valley Show, and get 15% off your entire wine order. Not bad. If you want a better deal than that, join our Judd's Hill Wine Club. I guarantee you're going to have a good time. We're going to send you the wines we make. We're going to invite you to events. We're going to give you a good price on wine. All kinds of other fun surprises. As I said, a good time guaranteed. It's free to join. We'll have some fun together. In the meantime, enjoy today's show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of Finkel fun. Get ready for another heapful of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show, on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. Wine, 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 all hail the great divine. Wine, 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 makes everyone feel fine. Here's to our own magician who makes grapes into wine, our very own, he's back, Chad Finkelstein! Wow, that all right. Mr. Lauren Mole, well done, sir. Top of the day, Judd, welcome back. Thank you very much. I love the new intro. Is that an original poem by Mr. Lauren Mole? No, it was written by someone else first, but uh, oh. <laughs> I kind of added it in today. You made it your own. Just for today. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, welcome back indeed. We've been on summer vacation for a few weeks. I haven't seen you in a while. What's been going on? Well, first of all, I'm happy to say that uh, my page just got... My picture got on page 71 of this month's issue of Napa Valley Life magazine. No kidding. What are you doing? What was your great accomplishment? Or is it just being the fabulous Mr. Lauren Mole that got you into the magazine? No, actually, uh, it was for an ad for Channel 28. Oh, okay. Where you are the announcer for yes. the on-camera announcer for Artie Party's show. Yes, I am. That's cool. I also saw you were featured on the Napa Rayleigh's Facebook page. That's right. As a uh, beloved employee and staff member, they were very proud that you were singing at the A's game. Oh, that's right. Yeah. How the, did that go? Oh, man. I got to say, Jen, the A's game was a success. And I got to say, to us and everybody else that everybody is a star, we just hit ourselves a home run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah. yeah. Over the table. Man, this is an active place in the morning. You yeah. better believe it. This is our this is our guest piping in. Feel free to pipe in. Even though we haven't given you a proper introduction, you are free to join the conversation. Just pipe right in. Any point you want. So you this was the national anthem you were singing. Yes. Great. With Everybody's a Star, some of the other folks from the organization. Yes. Do you want to say once again what Everybody's a Star is about? Sure. Everybody's a Star is a nonprofit organization based in Sonoma that helps special needs individuals uh, showcase their talents in special broadcast quality music videos. And folks can find out more and see videos, including your own, at everybodystar.org. Yes. So some of the other talented performers, and you went out and sang the national anthem. Yes. And you got a standing ovation. Yes, we had a great time. And a hatless ovation. A standing hatless ovation when you sing the national anthem. That's That's right. Well done, sir. Thanks. And and things good? Summer's going well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and thanks for... uh, Invited me over to Yucca Palooza last month. Oh, that was fun over at Oxbow. We had a great time. Thank you for giving us the proper introduction to really kick it off. Glad I could. And your voice, I'm telling you, it just ain't a real happening until Lauren Mole shows up to introduce it. Yep. <laughs> I guess you could say that. I just did. And oh. I'd say it again. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what's been going on with you, Judd? Uh, how has how's been your time off from the show? 
You know, it's been nice. I've missed being here, but it's been a nice vacation. A little bit of travel here and there. But now back, you know, we're uh, into harvest, so I've got to be around. It's It was our earliest harvest on record here at Judd's Hill. July 31st, we took our first grapes. It was a, not much. It was about a ton of Sauvignon Blanc grapes from up in... Um, Calistoga. Then more grapes didn't come in for about another week or so, but that was the earliest date that we ever got grapes delivered. But we're into it now, and I'm excited. My hands aren't quite, uh, we're not into the red, so I can't show my, you know, black, cracked, uh, stained fingers yet, but we're getting there soon enough. I do have something fun coming up. Actually, a couple fun things. Let's jump ahead to the weekend. On Sunday is the Judd's Hill Harvest Party and Wine Club Pickup Party, which is open to anybody who wants to come. But if you're a member of our wine club, you get in for free. And there will be um, all kinds of fun. You can look on our website to get more details. It's Sunday from noon to 2.30. Go to judshill.com and check out the events page. We have signed up for Instagram. Finally, I don't know what's taking us so long, but if folks want to follow us, I'll take a picture of the gang here today. I'll put it on our Instagram account. It'll be photo number two, I think. We just signed up yesterday. (laughs) that, That would be great. Yeah. So folks want to see what's going on at Judd's Hill. Of course, we've got Facebook. Uh, Twitter is Judd's Hill. Now we're on Instagram, just Judd's Hill, one word, no apostrophe. And, uh, ooh, even live videos. I just found out about this Periscope app. Do you know about this, anyone? Well, Yeah, the video streaming yeah. thing. Yeah, that, that they're making illegal in all sorts of sports events and uh, right? theaters and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that would make yeah. sense. I didn't think about that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of brouhaha around Periscope. Well, you can find us there, too. I'm going to be using it tomorrow. And here's what's happening tomorrow. I'm going to be using Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Periscope to document all of this. We are going to be releasing soon our very first Madeira-style wine. Ooh. Yeah. I'm excited. I've always enjoyed Madeiras and learning about them and, of course, tasting them and Side. Well, let's, let's, let's talk make about a, Madeira. Well, Put that on a note for later. Well, I'm going to ask you about, about it right Madeira. now. In oh, fact, okay. we're going to introduce right. you and we're going to we're going to talk about it right off the bat. So in days of old, Madeira wines were the, the barrels of them were put on ships in the island of Madeira, you know, Portuguese island, and then sailed around the world. And during these trips, these long voyages, they would. Well, most wines, they'd, they'd be ruined. They'd get cooked and oxidized. And there was something about these. They decided they would, I guess, fortify them with a little alcohol and a little sweeten. And it actually improved the wines. And they liked this style of the cooked and oxidized and on and on. You'll, you'll, our guest today is going to clarify all of what I'm just saying here in a oh, moment. Yeah. So I'm or recreating. I'm going to recreate the ancient voyage of Madeira tomorrow. I'm loading up our barrels, our two barrels of Madeira-style wine, and we are going to circumnavigate the Sacramento River Delta, where I hope it will be very hot. That's why I chose it instead of the bay, because it's not all that hot usually around the bay, but the, the River Delta, making stops along the way at some places that are important to Judd's Hill, some vineyard folks I know out there, some barbecue restaurant folks I know out there, some almond, excuse me, emmon, they call them emmon farmers Ammons. out there. And we're going to take photos. I'm bringing along Captain Wiley Raven, our Judd's Hill wine pirate, to accompany me. And we'll be documenting all of this via all the social media I just noted. So tune in, comment, have some fun, join us. We we need to introduce our guest. I I want to talk to him about all of this and more and more and more. What do you think, Lauren? Well, I say we go for it. Okay. My introduction is ready. Judd, can I? Please. A master of wine whose day began dry. Let's get him a drink. Bourbon and rye? Perhaps they find Pinot to make this plan fly? Something sweet in a bottle? Or form a can dry? I know, a Mai Tai out on our Lanai. Whatever his poison, let's welcome... Tim Hanai. Ah, it's Tim Hanai, the master of wine. Lanai's and Mai Tai's. (laughs) And from a can dry. Anyway. Can dry. Drink that can dry. We reached for those rhymes for you. That's right. (laughs) We aims to please. A Hanai coordination. Hanai? You must have a million of these. Hey, now. Hey. Tim Hanai, you are a master of wine. I love that title. That just says. I know. it, It evokes such an image of who you might be. <laughs> and, and who someone, I'm not. <laughs> someone's ringing. Is that, Oop, me? Is that me? I don't know. I'm someone's buzzing. ringing. Everyone wants the master. Well, it's not me. Do you want to talk about Madeira's? I mean, you are the most qualified person in this building to talk about, well, pretty much anything wine related at this point, being well, a, a master things. of wine. We can talk about what a master of wine is after this, but I really want to hear about Madeira from you. Well, uh, 
one one thing is I'm really old, and you know my my interest in wine started in like 1966. Yes. And when wines are really really cheap, the what what a lot of people don't know is you were old enough to drink in 1966. No, of course I was 14. Not. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I guess that gives away my age. But anyways, the um, and also <laughs> leads to other conversations. The uh, <laughs> Most people don't realize how bad wine used to be, okay. and 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 that that was the norm. So so you know we've got all this uh, stuff around pairing wine and food and how they used to do things in the old world. Mm-hmm. Well, matterized, oxidized wine used to actually be status quo, and that's what wines were put in the cellar to become very often. Oh no, kidding! It, yeah, I mean, we, that was a goal. Yeah, what's there's a huge, huge lack in the wine industry of rigor around wine education and understanding history and traditions. Part part of my overall mission in life <laughs> is to uh, to really correct a lot of the misinformation and the lost history and traditions. And so, Madeira basically was something to aspire to. And matterization, and if you had normal wine go into the casks to go around uh, and be shipped, like to the Americas or throughout Europe or that kind of stuff, they 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 actually went beyond matterization. They they spoiled and became rancid, Ooh. which led to a term called a goût de terre, which meant not the taste of the soil, but this earthy, contaminated taste, oh. like microbiological contamination. See, I hear de terre. I think that's nice. That's well, the, and terroir. that leads to the terroir is a whole train wreck. Even the, <laughs> seriously, the French don't even know what it used to mean. So back to the Madeira. Okay, yeah. Let's I kind of digress a little bit, Feel so free. excuse me. And so, so what happened is by fortifying the wine a bit. They could send it, and it would safely matterize, which was a desirable trait, even to the point that that then they began to to construct what are called etouffees, where they would quote unquote cook the Madeira That's on big the island oven rooms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they they could replicate that. Now etouffee comes from the word etouffe, which is French for stew, which is related <laughs> to etouffee oh, yes. in New Orleans, New Orleans and sure. so on. So they were quote-unquote, stewing the wines. How about that? Well, that's yeah. what I'm hoping to do tomorrow around the Sacramento River Delta in the back of our truck with exactly. a pirate. And, and, you know, you could circumnavigate the globe in a, in a 1986 uh, Ford Windstar van with the wine in the back. And you, is that the one you're selling the, out from the station here? <laughs> I got a, it doesn't run very well, but it would yeah, make a great... So anyways, yeah, in Madeira, you know, in, in what's happened is Madeira was always served as, as an aperitif and before the meal. Mm-hmm. It's not an... Don't get me started on dessert wines, which is... Dessert wines is fundamentally a category created by the U.S. feds after prohibition to close a tax loophole. Is that right? And Chateau Ikem and wines like Dolce and, and these really sweet wines, including Port and Madeira and Sherry, were not dessert wines. They were usually enjoyed before and all the way through the meal. Hmm. So we've just made a a mess of things and under you know i love madeiros oh, oh yeah, my sure. god they are wonderful all right i want to continue all of this but first of all we need to back up we all need right. to find out a little bit about you so we know that the person speaking to us with this expertise really deserves our attention so first of all what is a master of wine and how did you become one there are not many in the world i know this well the 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 con- a lot of confusion lies in what's the difference between a master of wine and a master sommelier. Okay, we can start All there. All right, so a master sommelier is the, the, the art and the science of service and in hotels and restaurants mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And master of wine is a credential that is assigned by the Institute of Masters of Wine in London. And it's primarily the business and sciences of wine. Okay. So it's been around since the early 50s. The, the institute was actually formed on my birthday, 1952. Oh. And administered the first examination in 1953. And it's become recognized as one of the pentultimate uh, uh, accomplishments in the wine industry. And how I became one is I'd heard about this... MW title 
since I was literally a kid. I was just say when you were fourteen. Yeah, you and reading books and seeing Michael Broadbent, and then later, you know, Jancis Robinson mm-hmm. and Serena, all these these heroes of mine. And so when I moved to Napa uh, in nineteen eighty eight, they were internationalizing the examination. Uh, and previously it required an, a knowledge of understanding the laws, regulations, and, and so forth of the wine trade in London. And then that was expanded to an international... This is a British-based organization. That's correct, okay. yeah. And, and most people don't know that, that for centuries the British are the ones who controlled the wine industry globally and even own Bordeaux and most of the Loire and so forth. It is a fascinating topic. Yeah. That could be a whole other show. I want to know about you, though. We'll oh, okay. Some history. So, so I, I, uh, 1989, on my Facebook page, we actually have a, a picture from my first uh, trial tasting uh, in the process of becoming a, a Master of Wine. So I was uh, invited to sit the Master of Wine examination in 1989. Mm-hmm. I failed heroically. Oh, no. I went to a writing seminar uh <laughs> to learn to organize my thoughts a little better. Went to the wrong seminar for three days with electrical engineers. Uh, learned about critical thinking, disruptive innovation, and passed the Master of Wine exam with Joel Butler in 1990. So we were the first two Americans in history to successfully do that. Yay! Congratulations, Mazatov, all that good stuff. That's 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 amazing. That must have felt like quite an accomplishment. Oh, it was a hoot, uh, and it was it was uh, part accomplishment and part depression Uh-oh. because I was also the, this learning that I that that's now culminated in my book and my work that I do mm-hmm. is is very disruptive. And at the time, I couldn't kind of I I had all these new thoughts running through my head of of dissonance and misunderstandings in the industry. I couldn't quite rationalize it. So it was also a very tumultuous period. I was getting divorced and playing in a new rock and roll band with had really wonderful outcomes and married the singer. Um, well, we're getting there. Don't yeah, worry. That's on my list of things to talk about. So anyways, <laughs> so that was really, you know, I was working with Behringer, loving life in general. Yeah. But also I had some sense of in in the back of my head that something was really wrong in the industry and with wine and food pairing and whatever. So for the, the 25 years since then, I really dedicated my career to my mission of better understanding a lot of, of the, um, the misunderstood hi- history, traditions, and background for the enjoyment of wine. Well, do you want to get right into that? Do we need to sure. find out a little bit more about you? you I know, don't care. I am curious. Yeah. Where did you grow up? And at the age of 14, how you never did grow up. Okay, good. I like that yeah. answer. All right. Where, uh, when you were younger, before you came to Napa Valley, where were you? And was your family into wine and food? Like, how did this interest get sparked at the age of 14? So, my dad was the uh, administrative director, executive director of the Dade County Medical Association in Miami. Oh. And in this, we we moved from Cleveland to Miami in like 1957, mm-hmm. and he was responsible in a large part for all the conventions and and activities of the of the AMA and and the Dade County uh, Medical Association. So the hip place to be was Miami Beach in the 60s, oh, and yeah. the Fountain Blue and the Doral and Eden sure. Rock. So he would pack up the whole family and we'd go like spend a week at these great hotels. And because he was the one responsible for these conventions, he was being wined and dined and whatever. And wine just was really cool to me. It was this was well before, you know, wine was as hip as it is today. Yeah. And then that's also when my interest in cuisine and you know, I'm also a professionally trained chef. And so it, just like, this is cool. Why don't I do that? Great introduction to it. We're going to have to talk maybe offline about this. Uh, I have a little family history. My grandparents were in the hotel business in oh, Miami no Beach in the 50s. So oh, no. I wonder. Right. There might be a connection well, here. Well, because we've got to talk about your, your parents and the note they sent me also. We'll get to that. Oh, we are? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not yeah. aware of this. Okay, so really at a young age, you were you kind of knew this was your path, it sounds like. like This was what interested you. This is what grabbed you. I started reading wine books and, uh, and, and 
and was just fascinated and loved the history, loved the things about the wine being shipped around the world. And, and that today we measure the capacity of a super oil tanker by how many wine barrels it'll carry, how many tons, uh-huh. which used to be. So, so the number of wine barrels a ship could carry became the standard measure of unit of measure for capacity. <laughs> yeah, and so, so when I was 17 in high school, I discovered if I could ask for a French wine in a liquor store, nobody would ask for ID. So ah, that really reinforced it. Too sophisticated to be underage. Well, I was a two, I could only get by with two sil- syllables right, and mostly order? burgundy. So Pomard, Volnay, those kind of things. <laughs> so your allowance money or your, yeah, did you have ex- a paper well, route or something like that? <laughs> I did. You spent that on yeah. uh, Pomard and. Yep. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Okay. Well, here we are today. We're in Napa Valley. You are now a master of wine. You've gone through the rigorous process. I mean, it seems almost inhuman. I, I did a little looking on the uh, Master of Wine website about what it takes to become a Master of Wine, and the testing is incredible, and the, the essays and the thought processes you have to demonstrate. So congratulations. Thank you. And it's no wonder there's not many of you out there. Yay. So here you are, and you are now, you've been described as an iconoclast. Definitely, you are deconstructing much of what is generally thought is correct, quote unquote, in the world of wine, especially around food and wine. When, when, when people start to do things in association with wine, wine education, wine businesses, and, and, I, and I also teach wine business for Sonoma State University, it's the only fully online wine business course in the world. And actually, I've got a, a new class starting next Wednesday. So anybody oh. wants to go to SSU, Sonoma State University's website, there's information on it. People are, including myself, people get really stupid when it comes to wine. There is no rigor of where did this information come from. We mm. work in this world of metaphors and of BS that is just so amazingly deep and 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 dug into our psyche Mm. that we don't stop and think, wait a minute, what was it really like? Where is this information true or, or, you know, so it's anyways. So, uh, the other thing that, that came about is, is shortly after I passed master of wine examination, two years after that, or three years, I stopped drinking. So I'm a recovering alcoholic and that was a little bit of a crossroads. Yeah. I've got to imagine that's going to affect your your place yeah, my as a master of wine <laughs> and what you do. So nowadays, when you're teaching, you're not. No, I you know. I study wine consumer behaviors, attitudes, and preferences. Hmm. So that's the primary work that I do at a very very high level, looking at the physiological and psychological factors of how we form preferences, and and also of perception sciences which is really cool. I just love my work. And then I've also got, you know, the business understanding and to, to kind of mix it all together. And it, I've got this wonderful uh, Eurocentric trivia-based history, gastronomic background. And so you, you can just go back and say, no, that's not what they did. That's not how they did this. And, and, and the, the, the benefit for the wine industry is we literally, by our own ignorance, and with this cryo, we've got to educate consumers, we're not educating them. We are just forcing them to adopt a bunch of myths and misinformation and downright lies sometimes. And then we make people feel stupid. But it's our own ignorance. So my mission is to, to re-educate the wine industry and the trade and to have people hold information to a much higher standard than they do today. Do you want to give some specific examples? I know we're not in the classroom setting, but if there's a couple tidbits you want well, to Well, I mean, wine, the... wine and food pairing. Okay, um, here's, here's a quote from you. Yeah. Wine and food pairing is a fraud. Yeah. I mean, I, it's an amazing quote, and it's yeah. pretty provocative. So do you want to All right, so tell me a little bit about why tell... you say that? And you have something you call wine and food unpairing. <laughs> The unpairing of wine and food. Well, give me, give me, give me just off the top of your head a <clears throat> an immutable or a a uh, overriding wine and food pairing cliche or something. Okay, one I get every single time I do a wine dinner. There, th- this might not necessarily be served, but somebody there will say, "Oh, this is obvious that they've done this," or "I'm surprised they didn't do this," because of course you want a big red wine with your 
steak and you want to have a nice crisp or floral white wine with your uh, fish. Got it. Okay. So, so basically what happened is uh, historically red wines were much, much lower in alcohol. They, for the most part, weren't very tannic at all. And they were often, even if they were great chateaus and so on, completely matterized, mm, right, which, <laughs> which would be earlier, a complete yeah. So what did they drink those with? And who ate steak? So very few cultures actually could afford to slaughter beef. And mm-hmm. if they did, it was usually old beef and made into stews or both bourguignon and so on. So it was very rare to have a, a big, you know, a steak like anything we know today or lamb like we know is mutton or very strongly flavored. Then we go into this rationale that, well, first of all, it's a big red wine. It's the same size as a white Zinfandel. It's just a matter of the glass. But we put big wines in metaphorically bigger glasses and by big people with big bank accounts so you can get big scores. And it's this whole series of of metaphors. And, of course, red is red. And you want to have white with white. So you've got the decorative elements. And then we say things like, oh, the proteins and the fat and the blah, blah, blah. And none of that actually happens. So (laughs) if you actually take unsalted steak, grill it, serve it with a strong red wine, a lot of tannin and so on, it makes the wine more bitter, more sour, less pleasant for most people. If you take pure fat that's supposed to coat your mouth and make the wine smoother, that doesn't even happen. Hmm. Take beef suet, take unsalted butter, olive oil, any any form of fat you can find, and it just doesn't happen. Interesting. <laughs> and then we go into the, <clears throat> the proteins, and we know in wa- winemaking you can find the wine with, with egg whites and proteins and right. colloidally suspended polyphenolics <laughs> and the uh, ionic charge and denaturing of the proteins and all this kind of stuff. Well, that doesn't happen in your mouth. And so the whole thing is just actually completely a fraud. It, it well, hence, hence, wine and food pairing is a fraud. And I'm, I am glad that some people are becoming aware of this. You know, folks in the professional, you know, dealing with consumers and diners, there are some chefs I think who are understanding this. We actually do. Uh, it's about a usually takes about an hour, a little hour long experience at Judd's Hill at the winery called Wine and Food in Balance, where we talk about this and folks get. Little taste. It's not food per se, but it's taste. And we talk about these big red wine and what would you serve this with and a little bit about this. And we give them a little pinch of salt. Just taste the salt and now taste the wine again and see what happens. How um, Are you saying the, 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 the protein or whatever, the, the steak can enhance the tannins, but a little bit of the salt... Or make well, we, we see the 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 thing is we need a whole new language. You can't do this just. I guess you're right. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's <coughs> not easy word, to talk about. You need to taste. It. You need to experience. Well, you need to experience, and then it's different for different people, and that's what I study. Okay, and I definitely <laughs> want to hear about this because you're right. Physiologically, we're all different. Well, in in the whole salt thing, let me. Salt suppresses bitterness. Yeah. So here, here's some of the misunderstandings. Do you know anybody that just, they don't even taste their food and they're dumping salt oh, yeah, on it? absolutely. That's a sign of having the most taste buds. And those people are experiencing uh, bitterness on steroids at a mm. really high intensity. And the role of salt is to suppress the bitterness that they're ultra, ultra sensitive to. And so we, the, oh, well, you're killing the, so if we don't do that, then, you know, the, those in the know frown upon it and whatever. And we punish kids for that behavior. With sweets or salt. Well, with salt. Yeah. We're just talking salt. Okay, because so, I can see that happening with sweet wine as well. Oh, and sweet wine. And it's, it's also a, a, uh, an indication that they're much more predisposed to want sweet wines or to talk dry and drink sweet. Mm. And that we don't, then the next fraud is that, oh, sweet wines are for beginners and naive, you know, unsophisticated. Well, stop that. That is stupid. That is the most ridiculous, moronic marketing position any industry can take to take 30 to 40% of the total available market and call them unsophisticated, uneducated, because they've got a personal preference for sweet. And they're physiologically wired to want sweet because of their bitter sensitivities. Hmm. And there's millions of them, 
and we disenfranchise them, they'll drink cocktails because they, they don't have to feel stupid like the ignorant wine industry makes them feel based on our own ignorance of who they are and why they like what they like. God, this is also yeah. fascinating ah. that I hate to break it, but we have to take a break And I right had now. a big cup of coffee this morning. Uh, all right. Have, okay, we'll take a break right <laughs> now. See a Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is Master of Wine, Tim Hanai, joining us here. We'll be back with more of Judd's Napa Valley Show right after these messages. Everyone's a Finkel friend on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Here's a look at your Napa Valley news courtesy of the Napa Valley Register. There is no Napa Valley news. I'm Lauren Mull filling in for Sharpie. Now back to Judd's Napa Valley Show. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren Mull. <laughs> Yay! Lauren Mull. Lauren what do we Mull, do ladies you? and gentlemen. We're here with Tim Hanai. Master of Wine, author, lecturer, man about the world, and you have you've you've brought me some goodies. What? Tell I, me, tell me what's going on here. This is unusual. I, I well, you said bring something unusual. Well, and you did. So so I've got two vintage stainless steel dog food and water bowls that are approximately nine inches in circumference. So these are for larger dogs. They've got a wonderful rubber uh, bottom to them. Not going to slip around. They're not, and and they're, uh, they're probably a good, I don't know, 10 or 12 years years old. Yeah, so. Well, thank you. Do you mind if uh, maybe some pet lover uh, audience member might get a chance to win this? Absolutely, yeah. So okay. these, these are from our, our wonderful family dog, Stewie, who passed away, and he was blind, and he was the mo- he was just a cool, he was a, a Labrador Basset mm. mix, and he, he was this noble head and this long body, and when he stood up, it was like, who sawed off your legs? <laughs> so yeah, he was the cutest guy. And so these are the Stewie Memorial Food and Water Bowl. And we've even got some food in the food bowl. In one of them. Some yeah. multicolored kibble there. Well, I'm yes. sorry for your loss. These are beautiful stainless steel bowls. Anybody listening right now, let's do a package deal. You have one of your books here as well. Yes. Which we'll talk about in a moment. This is your book called Why You Like the Wines You Like, Changing the Way the World Thinks About Wine. And we're going to talk about how amazing this book is and what your goal is for this book. But I'm going to say the first tweet, you got to be on Twitter to win this prize package from Tim Hanai, Master of Wine. The first tweet with the hashtag JNVS, Judd's Napa Valley Show, and at Judd's Hill, just include that and just say, I want to win. I want to win. And the first one through is going to get these. I'll take them back to Judd's Hill. We'll have them for a few days and then maybe I'll keep them. Oh, and I'll sign the book. It'll be an autographed book. Okay, well, let's talk about the book. Yes. There you go. Um, why you like the wines you like, which we were talking about a little bit here, you know, physiologically and psychologically, and then let's let's continue on. So one one of the one of the books that uh, I, I usually don't read. I I I honestly don't read a one book a year, hmm. uh, and and we'll get to that in relationship to how do you write one if you don't read. <laughs> okay. Um, but Jeannie Bauer, famous uh, wine food writer from New York gave me a copy of uh, Raymond Sokolov's book, uh, Why We Eat the Foods We Eat. And it was this, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I just love the history of gastronomy and, and, and so forth. And this was this wonderfully done, articulate book about the movement of food around the world. Mm. And so we, so, you know, oh, you have the Chianti with the pasta with tomato sauce, and then we make up all these reasons why you do it, which are... No, not true. What? Because basically, they don't serve pasta with tomato sauce per se in Tuscany, and tomatoes come from the United States or Central America. They're not an Italian product. It's fusion cuisine, and they were thought to be poisonous for hundreds of years. They were brought over as as poisonous ornamental shrubs, and people got poisoned because if you ate them off of pewter plates, you got lead poisoning. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and it's umami taste that we crave, and so in times of, of poverty and so on and scarcity, people start eating really weird things like um, the dead yeast from beer brewing and salted, mm. and, and that's what Vegemite is mm-hmm. and stuff. But these are all umami-rich foods that humans crave. So reading Ray's book and you know just throwing this all in the, the caverns of my mind— um, I had come up with 
some new deep, what I thought, think are very deeper understandings about what happens with wine and food and how incredibly the experience of what happens varies from one person to the next based on physiological factors combined with culture and learning and so on, the neurological factors that give us uniquely who we are. Yeah. Wow. So we had conducted a, a pretty cool uh, study of this in 2010 with my uh, research colleague, Dr. Virginia Utermullen at Cornell University. She's a board-certified pediatrician and had been studying this similar phenomenon with children for many, many years, and I ran into her. And so we published this report in 2010, and then later that year, I was approached by Ho- Harvey Posert, senior, who was the senior VP of communications for Mondavi. And he approached- A legend in the valley. A legend in the industry. One one of the greatest guys and one of my great mentors. He passed away last fall. God bless Harvey. Yes, indeed. And uh, Harvey came, he was from Memphis, so I get to do my Harvey invitation. He came up to me at at an event in San Francisco and says, I read your report you published with the doctor at Cornell. It has changed my life forever. How can I help? That sounded just like him. And I said, well, what happened? He said, I can't stand wine. I never could stand wine. When Robert hired me, I said, but Bob, I don't even drink Cabernet and Chardonnay. Why would you want me? And He was a bourbon drinker. Yeah, he's a bourbon drinker. (laughs) And he is representative of of fully 30 to 40% of the total available U.S. market, probably to 50 to 70% of the Asian market, who are physiologically predisposed to never like dry wines. Hmm. And he saw himself in the study. And there's, it's about 70% women and 30% men. And he just felt like he didn't fit in. And he was told he had no taste buds and this and that from, from the insiders in the industry. Yeah. But the long and short of it, alcohol burns and hurts to him. The tannins and the bitterness are just over the top excruciating sometimes even painful. And we just, we don't get this. We live in this insane thing. Oh, but I learned to like dry wine. You should too. And we think this is some sort of immutable migration pattern and it's not. Well, we all think like everyone else should be like us, whoever we are. That's right. That's just human nature. And it is human nature. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know that the person sitting next to us or across the table or our children or our parents or our spouses could be living in this incredibly vividly different sensory world. And so... So it's it's just this crazy thing that we've done with wine, overemphasizing certain things, making up imaginary wine and food pairings. Oh, but I tried it. I loved it. So, you know, so, you know, I don't, not consuming the wine, not having to, to defend my point of view, I turn my attention out to what don't we know? What could mm. we know better? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, when I stumbled across the term umami 25 years ago, scientists were talking about it, but like nobody else was. Describe umami right now, just in case folks know this is a new taste sense, not nope. necessarily new, but right. newly so, talked about. And- human beings are hugely attracted uh, to the sensation provided by natural glutamate and and synergized by something called nucleotides. Mm-hmm. Okay, So glutamate occurs naturally in food. And to understand a probably the, the purest example I can give of, of umami taste, eat a bite of a raw mushroom and then eat a bite of the same mushroom that's been microwaved for like 20 or 30 seconds in a small container. Oh, yeah? And... In the it's sort of a nothingness and with a little aromatic, earthy kind of mushroomy. But then all of a sudden, something's there in the cooked mushroom, and uh. that's umami. You converted glutamic acid, which is necessary for cell division, into glutamate. The nucleotides can amplify the intensity of the glutamate up to 10 times. Wow. So Parmesan cheese, those crystals are mostly amino acids mm-hmm. and primarily glutamate. And that's why we love to add it to our food because it 
ampli- you know, it provides that, that wonderful, rich umami, just like soy sauce does or Thai fish sauce. This is the whole thing with, I guess, MSG, monosodium monosodium glutamate. Monosodium right? glutamate is salt, and, and it's a refined form of, of, of a salt of glutamic acid, which is glutamate. Mm. And a lot of hysteria. I'm not talking, you know, you can think whatever you think about that. That's a whole nother five shows. But there's <laughs> University of California at Berkeley Wellness Center did a, a study of uh, f- food bought at a Chinese restaurant that used MSG and concluded a plate of pasta with tomato sauce and Parmesan cheese has more free glutamate than a plate of Chinese food with MSG added. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. We're, wow. So we love it. Yeah. The nucleotides are the anchovies that you add. They're also the lees stirring. So when you stir, stir the lees of Chardonnay or extend maceration of Cabernet, you're increasing umami taste in the wine. I've heard anchovy chefs talk about a secret ingredient. Add a little anchovy paste or a chopped up anchovy. Exactly. You won't taste the anchovy, but it's going to enhance the flavor overall of whatever dish it is. Or just, I use Thai fish sauce just Ex- to do the same thing. Exactly. So, so when a tomato ripens, you start getting natural glutamate in the, in the tomato. Mm-hmm. When it gets fully ripe and starts to go into cellular decomposition, you get the nucleotides. So the taste of a really great ripe tomato is umami. Mm. But it's also in seafoods, it's in meats, when you age things and cure them, when you take pork that has umami taste and then you cure it and preserve it and make it into into ham, you bacon is really rich in it so it's often called savory but it's in fruits it's in vegetables it's in uh way beyond just things that we would consider uh, savory and humans love it yeah absolutely and this ties in with with wine obviously well yeah because when the about almost 25 years ago I, i found if you have sweet food it will it will render whatever wine you have tasting less sweet, more bitter, more sour, more mm-hmm. astringent. So this is what we call the cause and effect relationship. And it's basically brush teeth, drink orange juice. Oh, yeah. All right. We can all relate to that. And it doesn't matter if it's steak or Asian food or nouveau cuisine or nouvelle cuisine or whatever, that's what happens if the food is sweet. Now, salt and sour, salt suppresses bitterness. Sour causes a neurological adaptation. Everybody today, pour a glass of big red wine, little sip, salt and lemon on your hand or somebody's belly or something. Go, <laughs> ay, 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 and try the wine again. It gets smooth as a baby's butt. Right. And that's how you'll find cuisine in Alsace, in Italy. You'll find lemons on, the, on everything on the plate from, you know, bistecca alla fiorentina to whatever. Uh, and, and that makes your wine smooth. And it does it for Sauvignon Blanc or for Chardonnay or whatever. If you get flavor balance correct, you, you really minimize the amount of sweetness. You maximize your umami and then temper it with a proper balance of salt and acidity and at, give every, leave the salt on the table. Uh, the chefs who take salt off the table, it's one of the greatest displays of abject ignorance in mm. history. And let people rebalance if they feel it's necessary. If they need it. Drink and and for those of you who have never done it, if you love cab, if cab is your go-to wine, day in day out, try it with oysters. Ninety mm. percent of the people who love cab as their go-to wine find with oysters. Wow, there's no problem. The brininess, right? The, of the oyster. The brininess and and it, the cab doesn't overpower the oyster yeah. and whatever. Now, if you're really hypersensitive, in what we call vinotype. If you're really hypersensitive, cab wouldn't be your go-to wine to begin with. And when you have the oyster, mm. it'll probably get metallic and bitter and so on. Well, don't do it. <laughs> or do like the French do and dip it in some vinegar, uh, mignonette sauce, sure. or put the lemon on it and, and whatever, and that'll mitigate it for the most part. But drink the wines you love. Eat it with the food you love the most. If leave you want the salt on the table. Yeah, leave the salt for those who want it. And when somebody's reaching for it, say, oh, 
I just learned that's a sign of having the most taste buds. You've probably been given grief all your life for that. And they'll go, God, thank you. Maybe they're super tasters. Well, super tasters is an that's unfortunate terminology. Okay. No, but it well, needs good. clarification. You're here to straighten me out. Let's yeah, actually, I've got, oh, I didn't bring my briefcase. I've got the, the compound. Dr. Linda Bartoshuk from Yale University uh, School of Medicine at the time did a, a, a study about genetics where she kind of casually, if you will, created the term super taster of a specific compound called urea, and it's called PROP or PTC. And very mistakenly, people adopted that as some sort of a superpower of taster. Nobody's palates are better than anybody else. They're, they're what they are for you. Mm-hmm. And, this, and if you are truly a super taster, you're probably drinking sweet wines not even dry wines. Oh. Yeah. And again, so we ascribe it, oh, to be a sommelier or a master wine, you have to be a super taster. No, you don't. But this is, again, how the wine industry just picks up on stuff, runs with it, and has no rigor around where did this information come from? How valid is it? What could I learn more deeply about it? So this is your mission. That's my mission. I get fired up, don't I? These are the windmills you're off to slay. (laughs) And it's impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're trying not to make it impossible. It's mission possible. Well, you're getting out there. I think it's... Well, Wine and Spirits Education Trust in London approached me about four years ago, and they've now rewritten all of their materials about wine and food and are eliminating wine and food pairing and replaced it with my principles. Wonderful. And Society of Wine Educators is next. Okay, so there's somewhere you can go to learn about that. Where else, if folks want to learn more about this? Your book, your yep. classes, how do folks get uh, in on this track with we've, you? Uh, we've, uh, so my website is tim or is timhanni.com, T-I-M-H-A-N-N-I.com. And there's a link to buying my book on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's also a number of uh, uh, videos and resources of people who have influenced my work. And then also a, a free copy of the 2010 consumer, consume, Wine Consumer Preferences, Attitudes, and Behavior Study. You can download from the site on one of the tabs. And then also a link to our band, uh, The Toasted Heads. That's kind of at the end of it. So, Speaking of the toasted heads, we are getting yeah. short on time. I've got some stuff I'm going to play. Do you have do you have like 10 minutes when we're done here so we can add a little extra podcast content? Oh, absolutely. Okay, because we're going to we're gonna talk about the band in, Yay, the, in the podcast. My beautiful wife, but Kate. Let's, Hi, Kate. Absolutely. Hi, Kate. Uh, but let's continue here because I really like the track we're on. I've also noticed that you have, I mean, videos galore on YouTube. Just oh. search your name, Tim. Yeah, a lot Hannah, of them H-A-N-N-I. are... H-A-N-N-I. Yep, and a lot of them are uh, uh, done by uh, Mirabeau Wines in, in France, mm-hmm. and then there's a number of SS so- Sonoma State. If you want to see what the Sonoma State class is like, I actually uh, uh, upload my recorded uh, webinars so you can kind of get a sense of what I teach and how I teach it. Yeah, that's very um, cool. And yeah. on your website, timhanai.com, you've got, well, you've got some of the videos, but you also have uh, articles and you have some very humorous articles. You're a funny guy. I hope folks are picking I'm that up from this. a very funny guy. A very funny guy. Speaking of which, it's now time to play everyone's favorite party game here on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Yay! This is Madeline. That's right, Tim Hanai, master of wine. We're going to go quickly. I think you know how this is done. I'm going to ask you to fill in the blanks and we're going to go. Are you ready? Right. Here we go. I need an adverb. Loquaciously. Lo- very good. Loquaciously. I don't even know what that means. No, speaks, do I? speaks well and often. Okay. A noun, a thing of some sort. A beehive. Beehive. You are quick at this. How about another noun? Uh, DL double loader railroad car. <laughs> it's a My freight pa- car. car in a, Hold on. Yeah. A DL. DL double loader Double loader. Freight train car. Train car. If you ever go freight train hopping, it's most desirable. Which you have done. Okay, I'm glad you can stay because we got a few more things to talk about. (laughs) A noun, another noun. Uh, Diving board. Diving board. A number, any number in the world. One. Oh, we're number one. An adjective, a descriptor of some sort. Dainty. (laughs) All right, and finally, one more adjective. Obsequious obsequious that's a good one okay earlier today i did go on your website timhanai.com and looked at your 
your bio, took a snippet of it, which you've now just rewritten via this Mad Lib game. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who am I? <clears throat> Tim Hanai is an internationally renowned flavor maven, a loquaciously trained chef. He is one of the first two resident Americans to successfully complete the examination and earn the title Master of Wine. It means I speak better than I cook. <laughs> Very well. Um, he is a certified beehive educator accredited by the Society of Double Loader <laughs> Train Freight Car Educators. <laughs> and he has been involved with wine and diving board related businesses, <laughs> education and research for over one year. <laughs> one, yes. <laughs> hey, you're getting good. Hanai has a unique perspective on food and wine providing a dainty and obsequious approach to the subject. <laughs> <laughs> that's well half, done. That's half right. <laughs> Tim Hanai, thank you so much for joining us today. Judd, really a pleasure. Lauren, thank you, buddy. And now, here's some exclusive podcast content. This is some of the stuff that did not get on the air. That's right, Lauren Mole. We were having... I think such a great conversation, Tim Hanai and I and Lauren. Time just kept got away from us, and there's so much I want to talk about. I want to keep talking. Let's let's talk about you brought up train hopping. This has nothing to do with wine or flavors and and anything we were talking about before. But you you did some hoboing. It sounds like yeah. <laughs> maybe not hoboing, but you you hopped trains for a while. What was that going? Well, what was that all about? Uh, uh, I went to University of South Florida in Tampa, uh, and this was just prior to dropping out of college to go to work at Burns Steakhouse, which was my actual first formal job uh, of any of any note. And we were sitting around in uh, in an apartment in Tampa, and it was summer, and it's kind of well, you know, we got a like a month period. What what should we do? And my friend Bob Oreck said, "Let's go hop freight trains." Wow. And I keep in touch with Bob even today. This was 1971. And we thought, well, how do you do this? You know, we didn't know. So there were three of us. One of the guys chickened out. And so we had him drop us down at these freight yards. And we were in a holding yard. And and this was where? Where was the freight? In Tampa. In Tampa. This is in Tampa. Okay. And we had no clue where we were going to go. But our goal was to get out of state. That's, <laughs> you know, that's what we thought. And it was just absolutely a hoot. And every time we would hide in a freight car in thinking we were we were invisible, mm-hmm. somebody would stick their head and, what are you boys doing in here? And, oh, really? Yeah. And, and you want to find a DF double loader. They're the most comfortable. So that's, ah, like, that's how you knew that. <laughs> hey, now. Hey, now. I, I know what kind of freight train. And you look for one with two doors open. Mm-hmm. It turns out we were in the holding yard, not the freight yard. So the guy said, well, there ain't going, anything going out of here for a week. Oh, and so, <laughs> you so, been there a while. So we, he, he got us on a car to get us over to the freight yards. And we made it all the way to Nashville, Tennessee. And, from Tampa to uh, from Nashville. From Tampa to Nashville, riding freight cars in 1971. And How long was that journey? Uh, that was, it was about eight days total. I'm kidding. And so you slept on the cars, you oh, it ate, was, how'd, you, how'd you get your grub? And <laughs> Yeah, in various ways. We had knapsack and sleeping bags. Our, our first major score was from Tampa to Baldwin, Florida. Mm-hmm. And it was about a... a Almost ten hour leg, and you've have you ever seen a, a freight train go by at speed? And one car is making this racket, and it's because it's out of balance. Oh, and and we were in that car, <laughs> uh, and had to stand up for ten hours because it was literally throwing us back and forth. Oh and man, we jumped out of the. We were a bunch, we were hippies and uh, you know long hair and that. We jumped out to go to a diner in Rome, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And these pictures of jumping out of the train and you know jumping onto an ongoing. That's that's all for the movies. That's no reality. So, anyways, it was a blast. We had we didn't get killed, which was yeah, you know, that's pretty dangerous stuff. <laughs> And the folks you met, did you meet some interesting people? Oh, we met that? interesting people. At one point, we were walking from one set of freight holding to another in, a, in Jacksonville in a really huge... And we were, there was an igloo cooler in a little shack. And as we were walking up to it, a guy came running out, pulling a gun out of a holster. Oh, no. And ran right by us. Oh. <laughs> no. Where was he going? <laughs> we, don't, yeah, don't. we don't know. But boy, that water sure tasted good <laughs> yeah, on, a, on a, 
after I think it was an August afternoon in in Florida. Yeah. Well, you sure know how to have a good time. What do you do for a good time around here? That's maybe not wine and food related. Well, you know the um, so many. I love fishing and uh, and I and I just love my work. I mean, that's what I do most of mm. the time. That's wonderful. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the band and the music, and and uh, I, I'm a little obsessive with my stereo system and <laughs> and. Crazy, crazy electronics and, yeah. and speakers and stuff like that. Cool. So fishing, I read in the paper earlier this year, you, you and I think Bill Ryan. Bill Ryan. Our, Ryan. Our Hi, resident, Bill Ryan. Hey, Bill. Our resident Napa Valley fishing guru writes the column in the St. Helena Star. You guys yeah. caught 55 shad out in the Delta? Oh, that was a number of years ago. Yeah. Oh, and I thought it, that was just Anybody wants May. to take me shad fishing, uh, he probably mentioned it again. Oh, okay. Not only because it's such a killer day, but because with my culinary expertise, what I do with shad row. What do you do with shad it, row? It monumental. It's it's done with bacon and wrapped and fried and then with a, a, a caper munier kind of a butter oh, and and whatnot. Yeah. You you want me at your house if you've got fresh shad row. I'll have to go shad fishing. I'm wondering what wine do you unpair with that? Whatever wine you like. Exactly. So, I mean, that's the answer. I, I love mean, the, the answer. The whole unpairing thing is there, there's a very clear as a bell in, in 1938 in Larousse Gastronomique, mm. uh, the my Bible, not the modern Larousse Gastronomique, but the one that was translated in 1961 by Crown Publishing. You can find it on Amazon, very, you know, for like 25 bucks. But there's a whole section on wine and food and so forth, and it says unequivocally that when the best wines are served, the Lafitte, the Romanée, the 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 Cote Roti, etc., mm. um, or if the guests prefer the sauterne, the, the white wines of Saint-Pierre, sweet wines yeah. are offered. So that's not wine and food pairing. That's pairing. Yeah. So Harvey Poser, my huge hero, the reason my book got published, he said, well, what you're doing in effect then is you, you match the wine to the diner, not the dinner. I read that quote. I didn't realize yeah, that was that Harvey. Was and that is becoming a quickly becoming a core memory of mine. I mean, I'm just... That's a mantra for me. Yeah, and it's it's it like makes all the sense. Welcome in the world. to my house. Welcome to my table. This is hospitality. Yeah. Welcome to my restaurant, uh, Fleming Steakhouse. You know, I I did I do a huge amount of consulting for Marriott and Ritz Carlton and Ruth's Chris. Ruth Fertel was was a really really big fan of my my craziness. Oh, nice. And so Fleming Steakhouse, just at my behest, and and the work that I did with P.F. Chang's and Fleming's, I did the their original wine programs. They they moved sweet wines to the to the main core of the list and it's just hot as a pistol. So everybody's bitching and moaning about sweet wines and sweet wines give it up. Market to them. Make products that are valuable. I'm speaking to you guys out there. Quit with your moronic insistence that that dry wine's the only good wine. Jesus, give it up. Sorry. Nope. <laughs> I'm sitting on a soapbox. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a platform. I want you to do this. This is why we brought you in. We want to get to know you, what you're thinking. And Madeira's, and especially new Judd Hill Madeira's. Yeah, you got to give that a shot. And I'm not going to argue with anything you say because it all makes sense. All the sense in the world. I know. It's, we call ourselves the flatheads. And it started with this nucleus of chefs and, and wine experts. And Sarah Scott, you know, yeah. senior executive chef for 14 years at Imondavi. Mm -hmm. She was actually there at the seminal moment when I was at Behringer, the School for American Chefs. And it's like, well, why do we pair this and this and this and blah, blah, blah. And then we'd research it, whatever, and smack ourselves on the forehead and go, duh, no, that's not true. <laughs> and so we, were, we call ourselves the flatheads. Because you're smacking yourself. Yeah, exactly. Flat it out. <laughs> flatheads. Yeah. Toasted, toasted heads. heads. Let's talk about toasted heads. This is your band. So I, I when I when I joined Behringer, there was a really talented guy who uh, who was called Chateau Bob. He was the brand manager for Chateau Souverain, Bob Janus, uh -huh. and uh, Bob played keyboards and guitar uh, really well and had a great voice. So I play crappy guitar so at different sales meetings and and stuff we would get up with the band and play and then we started a band with bob foley was in it and mm -hmm. guitar player and did recording with us and bob foley said i know a singer who's looking for a gig and it was this really really cute blonde real estate agent 
who lived in Napa, but, but at the time was living in Antioch. And her name was Kate. And I was married and she was married. And, you know, I was an embarrassed, lousy guitar player. <laughs> and she was a, like this awesome singer. Yeah. And um, so we went on a little hiatus when I went down with Meridian Vineyards uh, with the Behringer team. And then when I came back, I had gotten us the gig to be the house band at Bruce Cohen's annual fundraising oh, event. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal out there. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so I go to the band, I said, hey, I got us a gig, and by the way, we're expecting in the audience will be Toto, Little Feet, Huey Lewis, um, the Doobie, Doobie Brothers. Brothers are always there. Yeah, and, and, and whatever. They're, they're like, are you kidding? I said, no. We, <laughs> so we were practicing. I had gotten divorced. Kate was in the process of getting her divorce, so I said, Come on over to my house on Manly Lane. Manly Lane. On Manly Lane. And I was ready. Yeah. And and she came over with the drummer. I said, that sucks. And then later she... I know it. I know it. I I said, I meant alone. And then later she said, is that invitation still open? And she came over and never left. So we've been married... Uh, 23 years. 23 years. You banded together. Yeah, exactly. And then we started playing with uh, uh, with a core group, Reed Fromer from San Rafael, who's just an absolute brilliant musician. Mm. And he, he has a group, Reed Fromer and Friends, with Tony Langford, a bass player who's toured with um, uh, Barry White, and mm. a drummer, Tony Langford, who's from Detroit and was... American Bandstand's house drummer. Oh, wow. He was the original drummer for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow. And, and, and decided not to go to L.A. with them and kick, kicking himself in the ass mm. ever since. But these guys are just brilliant. And you've got them. And then we play with them as the Toasted Heads when we play. And in, 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 we, we do primarily fundraising and special events, that kind of stuff, winery parties sometimes. Well, I've got a little clip oh, I'd yay. like to play of you guys playing at a little fundraiser. This one is going to feature, well, of course, you, Tim Hanai, you'll hear on guitar, your lovely and talented wife on vocals, but somebody is singing some um, harmony oh, and backup vocals as well and, and, and piping in with some comments, none other than the... The late great oh. Mr. Robin Williams. That what must a, have been exciting. Oh, it was a fun night. Kate, Kate was dressed as Edith Piaf, and had just sung a tribute to Al Bronstein. From so, Creek, yeah. and this was a fundraiser for the Napa Valley Symphony, and so Kate got up and sang "La Vie en Rose," which is Al's favorite song. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards was a big auction lot, and Robin got up on stage for, and, and it was just absolute pandemonium. Wow. So I was master of ceremonies, and, and I, I said, "Let's play respect." And so that we broke into that, and uh, yeah. Well, here's a little so, clip. Yay! That was great. <laughs> but hold on. As great as that was, um, you, I think, even upstaged Mr. Robin Williams with the quote of the night. Let's listen to this. And by the way, we need to set this up. Your wife is wearing a wig. A wig. she's playing Edith Piaf from yeah. the previous song that you mentioned. So that's the setup. Here's your line. Do I love my life or what? <laughs> yeah. my wi- Do I love my wife or what? Keep that hair on, honey. I want to sleep with a strange woman tonight. Thanks. Keep that wig on, honey. Yeah. (laughs) Well done. All right. We've had some fun. It's been fascinating. I just love talking to you, but I do have to ask you something. Yeah, please. We're going to go on record here. Lauren, are you ready? Ready than ever, Judd. Okay. Tim, 
Hannah. Yeah. Author, lecturer, world traveler, master of wine. Do you go nuts for donuts? You know, I go hide from carbs. Okay. Then I'm just going to have you not eat one of these, but oh, we have some fresh oh, from no. okay, Buttercream okay, Bakery. You can take a look. Yeah, they've got to get some tape them. off that. You can smell oh, them. Okay. Oh, I do go nuts for donuts. You know, one of my... I wrote. I was writing to junior high school, and this new little bakery in Miami had opened in a in a shopping center. And I went in, and it was my first experience with Bavarian cream filled donuts. And oh my god! Okay, you know what? This is actually better. I'm glad that you're not eating donuts. I know they look great. They smell great. Coconut. There's a maple old fashioned. There's a crumb. A spice glazed. Oh man. Raised with the giant's colors and then no, the pink confetti. That's a leftover Halloween. That's very old. <laughs> or very new. Uh, we're kind of getting there again. So oh, giants, that's right. But I'm actually glad you're not going to eat one because I was about to pretend like I didn't learn one thing from talking to you today and ask you while you bit into one of these, which wine would you pair with this donut? But we're not going to go there. Yeah, well, actually, we can't. But we can't. I guess I haven't learned a thing. My goodness. Am I that dense, Lauren, on all my shows? Oh, no. You're perfect, Judd. Well, thank you. That's why I keep Lauren Muller around. It's the the ignorance of the wine industry that, that the collective delusions... That, that have been so embedded in the discourse mm. that has you be that way. Okay, so let's talk donuts and All wine. Right. The wine you love would be best. Absolutely. And if it sucks when you have them together, wait a minute. <laughs> All right, Tim, thanks again for coming. It's been a pleasure. Yay. Um, I hope we can do this again sometime. Always much to talk about. And thank you, sir. Signing off. Thanks, Judd. Thanks, Lauren. This is Lauren Mole saying so long for Judd's Napa Valley Show. This has been a Gillamar production. That's Napa Valley Show.